Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. I hope you're well. It's been a pretty chilled out week, you have to say, which is uh, fairly inevitable after the way the football went last weekend. Not much to say, is there, after a 5-0 win? Achieved without your best player so far of the season, with five different goal scorers, and your fourth clean sheet in five games? What can you do but go full Oliver Twist and say, please, sir, can I have some more? And by some more, I mean do that in every game between now and the end of May. And I think we'll all be pretty happy. Of course, there will be some people who will complain. That's just the nature of some people. But in general, if we could just, you know, keep winning and uh, stick with the not losing thing, I'd be, I'd be all all right with that. It has been a pretty uneventful week, so... We've got to do something a little bit different with this week's podcast. It's going to feature an interview with a man who joined Arsenal in the 70s, made his debut in 1979, played over 160 games for the club, unfortunately had to retire quite early. But we get the story of John Devine, who was spotted by uh, Arsenal scouts in Ireland, went on trial, joined Arsenal in the 70s, grew up with the likes of David O'Leary, Frank Stapleton, Liam Brady, uh, among all the other Irish guys that were there at the time. So we get the story of how that came to happen. How was he spotted in Dublin? How did he make the move to Arsenal? What was it like? Uh, how the club helped him? How the club treated him during his career? Uh, and why it ended uh, so early? And, of course, we touch on what he's doing now and his thoughts on, on the current modern Arsenal. So that's all going to come between now and the end of the show. As well as that, of course, we do have to look ahead to the North London Derby taking place tomorrow. So we'll do that a bit later on. But apart from that, it's been it's been pretty quiet this week. There's been not much happening. And that is the consequence of things going well. And I'm quite all right with that. When a Jack Wilshire smoking story, again, is the uh, is the biggest issue of the week leading up to a North London Derby, then you know that things are pretty all right behind the scenes. There's no drama. There's no crisis. We're not firefighting after a defeat or a bad performance. We've been playing well. The results have been reflected in that. And we're in good shape going to to White Hart Lane tomorrow. As for Jack, well, it's a bit daft, isn't it? I know it's not the worst thing in the world, but maybe, just maybe, when you know you're going to get your picture taken on a night out with your mates and all the girls and stuff, just put put down the, the pipe thing. Put down the pipe before somebody uploads it to Instagram or one of those. Just Just put it down. That way nobody would ever know what it was you were doing. The things that happen off camera, nobody knows about. Now, maybe it was because he was... In a, in a circle of friends that he thought he could trust what was going on. But look, you know what young people are like today. They upload everything. Every single bit of their lives, you can get it on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all those kind of things. 
those of us of a certain vintage are a bit more reluctant to share everything, every single tiny little minuscule insignificant thing that we do. But that's not the case for these kids today. You know how it is. So a little bit foolish of him. It's not the first time either, is it, that he's been caught smoking? You remember that he was caught during the summer standing in a swimming pool with a cigarette. Now that I think about it, Wojciech Chesney was smoking in the showers. So maybe there's some method to their madness, because we know that Chesney and Wilshire, they're, they're great friends. Maybe they're planning for the future. Football is a volatile career. You're up one day, down the next. Who knows when it might end? It's not like these guys have a trade to fall back on. Not like the old days where you could go work for the local shipbuilding yard when you were finished. It's not the case anymore. Maybe they're trying to create the first waterproof cigarette. I mean, we've got electronic cigarettes now. We've got flavored cigarettes. We've got coloredy ones. We've got filtered and unfiltered. They, they could be just taking it to the next level. Perhaps they should do their research at home, though, not in public. That would be the best thing for the future. The other thing I've had to deal with this week is a second Andrew Mangan. I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's an Andrew Mangan in Colorado in the United States of America. I think that's where he is because I keep getting signed up to political events by some candidate for I don't know whether he's Democrat or Republican or whatever he is. All I know is I'm not interested. And I keep getting these emails from people saying, thank you for applying to be on our course, blah, blah, blah. And I reply, look, this is not the right guy. This is a completely different Andrew Mangan. And they sometimes don't write back. But sometimes I say, oh, thank you. Uh, we'll try and figure out what's going on with, with Colorado Andrew Mangan. But now there's another one. Another one. And he's worse this guy's in Melbourne, Australia, and Andrew Mangan in Melbourne, Australia. And the problem is they're giving out my email address, or at the very least, I'm getting emails that are supposed to be for them to my email address. I don't quite know what it is. I know there's some issue with Gmail, whereby if you have like your first name, dot last name, as the email address, it will go to the person who's got first name, last name without the dot. There's some, there was something like that, I remember, in the past. But this week, I got an email from a lady called Pam, who said, Hi, Andrew, welcome aboard. We spoke briefly on Sunday. I coach the championship team and look forward to working with you. Then she says, If a player needs to be strapped, are you able to do this before their game? Well, now, I'm assuming this is something to do with physiotherapy, but what if this is a weird torture that's going on? That this Andrew Mangan in Melbourne, Australia, is strapping players of some sport down and this Pam woman is, is electrocuting their genitals or putting her finger in places that her finger should not go. So I'm concerned that my reputation as an Andrew Mangan is being besmirched by these other Andrew Mangans who, if we're being perfectly honest here, don't do the brand a great service. Like, if they can't figure out what their own email addresses are, what hope is there? So I write back to this Pam woman and say, look, got completely the wrong Andrew Mangan here. I'm not going to strap anyone to anything. Maybe you could phone up this other Andrew Mangan and just tell him to use his own email address in the future. Nothing. I haven't heard anything. Now I'm concerned. I'm, I'm part of a strapping torture network that stretches across the globe. 
Could be a knock at my door any minute. It could be the FBI, CIA, rendition. Who knows? All because these guys can't figure out their own email address. Not right and proper. So if anyone knows these other Andrew Mangans, could you please perhaps punch them in the testicles? Or just tell them to figure out what fucking email address they're giving out to strange ladies who put their fingers in athletes. Thanks. Glad we got that cleared up. Right. Here's what we're going to do. Later on, we'll touch on the North London Derby. We'll get all the team news. Who's in? Who's out? Who's going to be available? What is the selection dilemma uh, the manager faces ahead of this game away at White Hart Lane? But now we're going to talk to John Devine. Sometimes it's a little bit odd when you meet somebody whose sticker you collected all those years ago. But he was an absolute gentleman, and it was great to talk to him about his life as a footballer, his life at Arsenal and beyond. So let's do it. Let's talk to John Devine. So let's start by by where what part of Dublin did you grow up in? Church Street, in right, the inner the city, city yeah, right yeah. in the middle of town. And I played for a local team there uh, in Halton Street Community Centre, and it was St Mickens Boys. And I played there from nine to twelve years of age under the manager Joe Lawler and my father Pop Devine. Yeah, Pop so Devine. Pop Devine. Yeah, right. he was a goalkeeper. He was good. He and were, any issues ever with your dad being the part of the coaching setup? No, well, he wasn't necessarily there at all the games. He was very way ahead of. It. He, he played the game and he realised the pressure of putting kids under pressure early on yeah. was not on. The, the, the most advice he gave me, which is priceless, was to practice with both feet. Right. And that stood to me in time as I played for Arsenal in the cup final years later. So he wasn't really hands-on all the time. He would right. just help out occasionally. Joe was the main man, the manager, yeah. Right, okay. And so you would play just all around all around the city? We, we play on the streets, basically. Yeah. yeah. You come home from school, you throw your bag in the bin, yeah. out you go, get your coats down. <laughs> Forget the homework. <laughs> Forget the homework. Come back to that later. And you'd spend two or three hours practicing, 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 and playing 1v1, 2v2, 3v3 on the streets. Three and in. And, that's it. and, and you were out on the street all day long. Yeah. You know, and that's where you got your contact with the ball. Right. And at what point then did it become sort of more formal, like joining, I mean, what, at what age, about 12? Well, yeah, exactly, regular league exactly football? 12. About 12, I started to cause a few ripples with people around different leagues. And, you know, you had your premier teams, you had home farm, mm. you had lots of teams like that that were very uh, renowned for developing young players and gaining international status at under 15. Yeah. So there was lots of temptations to leave my local club. But I stuck with them then until under 13. And I went out to another club, uh, a lesser type of club, in St. John Bosco. Oh, yeah. Out in Drimna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, That's where my dad grew up, actually. Well, there yeah, you yeah. go. And exactly, and a great club. And I was pleased I went there because uh, it gave me a chance to develop as a defender. We were always fighting and scrapping. Yeah. So it taught me how to defend. <laughs> Literally? <laughs> Literally, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, John Bosco was my choice. I didn't go to home farm, much to my father's. You know, uh, he really was worried about that because he said, look, if you want opportunities to ever play for Ireland under 15, they're yeah. the type of opportunities you're going to get. That was the big one, wasn't it? Home farm was where pretty it much was. everybody went. Yeah. yeah, it produced the majority of young Irish international players. Mm. But I was so I went training with John Bosco uh, in Drimna and I loved the atmosphere. I loved the players around me. We had a great time. And I used to get two buses to training. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of just walking up the road to Whitehall from where I lived, I got two buses. So it was a big sacrifice, but well worth it. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, enjoyable. Okay, so uh, when did you then come on to, to the radar of uh, Arsenal and maybe other other football clubs? Or were you aware that people were watching you, or, or how, how does that work? Because well, 13, most, 14, most of 15. the clubs, most of the big clubs at the time, for instance, Man United, Liverpool, Everton, and Arsenal, they were the four big ones mm. would have scouts here in Dublin. Yeah, because they knew the majority of the best players would have been 80, 90 percent would be in the Dublin leagues, and in the Dublin leagues they would have been mainly with home farm and players like that, Stella Maris, Belvedere, these top top teams. Yeah, yeah. But what happened was they had trials for the under 15 international squad. And I went to the trials, and you just elimination process constantly. There was about 300 kids, and people started to recognise as well. I'd, I'd been chased by Home Farm for a couple of seasons, mm. and you, you get that recognition. And Bill Darby came, and that was the start of it, really. Bill Darby came to the house and right. spoke to my parents. And what was that process like? Was that like we want to take him, or we're interested, or? Yeah, well, what it was, he did recommend again that you possibly, you know, the higher clubs would have more opportunity to play for Ireland. But luckily for me, fortunately, I uh, I passed the tests and I got into the squad with the mm. Irish team. And Bill would have been keeping a, an eye on me a lot over that six months. And he, when he came to the house, he actually asked them, would, I, would they be interested in allowing me to go on trial right. to Arsenal? So I'd got my first couple of caps uh, as friendlies and stuff like that and training sessions. And he would have been on the doorstep asking my parents to let me go. Now, I didn't know anything about this, by the way. For about a year, my parents told me later, that bill and and which I thought was very fair of them, you yeah. know, not to disappoint me. That if I, if it, if they weren't allowed to go, if I wasn't allowed to go, so Bill would have secretly spoke to my parents, and they were worried about my schooling. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Of if course. I, if I knew I was going to Arsenal, I'd just lay back on the school. So they're yeah. very clever. <laughs> <to treat> them. <laughs> and would you have? Of course, <laughs> football. You have to cut the corners. <laughs> so it was fantastic that uh, they got I, they got away with that. I I went over then, and then Bill got me over then. I, I, I was only thirteen and a half. When I first went with Dave O'Leary, yeah, so it was amazing. The two Dave, you went over together, yeah. Dave, Dave would have been over before me, yeah. Because Liam, Frank, and Dave, which we'll talk about later, obviously, uh, they were a year, two years older than me. And uh, but one of, on that occasion, it was good to travel with somebody, yeah. And he happened to be going back at that time. And I remember my first trip on a plane and, right. and with David. It's it's like yesterday. It was fantastic, and uh, I had a good week. I did okay. And that was one of several trial situations at Easter and summertime and Christmas when there was breaks. Right. You go over on trial. So what, 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 what exactly would happen for you? What age were you, 13 and a half? I was 13 and a half. Oh, so what happens trip? On, uh, uh, when you go on trial? What, what's expected of you and what do, what do you have to do? Do they watch you in training? Do you play a match? All yeah, well, I mean, you're in the same position. And what you realise very quickly is that you're, you're, with all your talent that you have here at mm. home, uh, you're a big fish. When you go there, you realise immediately the ball was kicked off. You were in, a, in for a hell of a time because everybody that was there was selected as the best of where they came from, whether yeah. it be Leeds, Manchester, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Sure. So you immediately knew the first morning's training, this is going to be tough. They were all good players and quality players and all wanted the same thing badly. So you'd go into a digs. That they'd have families, like with probably uh, boys and girls mm -hmm. in the family to make you feel at home. you get you settled in and then... Um, you'd go to training on the bus and you'd go mainly into practices like grids 5v2s possession play and then mainly games Right. and they were just looking to see and you were eliminated be three or four pitches going at the same time 
you know, that elimination process was ruthless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that wasn't just Arsenal, that was everywhere. Because I, I did go on trial to Everton and a few other clubs, and I was supposed to go to Man United later on as well. And it's a very ruthless business. It's cutthroat. Yeah. And you learn very quickly what you're in for. Yeah, I think people nowadays would assume it's, it's like that. But even back then, I'd say there was less... Uh, inclination to be mm. not decent but you know to make it easy for kids absolutely I think uh, people are much far more educated now as regards yeah. to the welfare of child protection and child welfare is a big issue now over the last 20 years that wasn't there but I have to say one thing on Arsenal's behalf every time I ever went there I was treated fantastic yeah the, the, the staff Fred Street all the people in the Alf, you know Alf, you know fields there were so many great people there that had gone through the system with Bertie Mead, the manager, and I only realised that when I got a little bit wiser and older, that these are fantastic people helping yeah. helping the club, putting some back in. That was kind of the exception rather than the norm it for was, football yeah, clubs. Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. some of the kids that would have come from other clubs had said they couldn't believe it, they weren't treated well, they were just thrown back in the digs and yeah. phone call to say, you're, you're not being asked back, end of story. Right. Arsenal were fantastic. From start to finish my whole career, I can't say enough about them. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So how long did it take for Arsenal to become convinced enough by you to, to bring you on board? I think properly? after about six months, I'd been about three or, four, three or four times over that six to eight month period of that up to 14 and a half. Yeah. And then I was playing Irish on the 15 international. I'd gained a few caps and... Uh, they obviously had seen enough to see potential there, yeah. which is all it is at that age. Yeah, sure. And, you know, that process of just picking maybe 10, 11, 12 apprentices each year, straight away you realise of that 300 over that year, that 10 are they going to be the ones. And then of that 10, two years later, you might pick one pro. So yeah, it's yeah, a ruthless, yeah. very intensely pressurised yeah. situation for a young kid. It's very difficult, isn't it? Very, you know, very to tough. Very tough. People yeah. don't realise. See, what happens a lot in Ireland as well, there's a lot of kids being put under pressure in games here, highly competitive games, to win leagues at under 11, 12 and 13. Yeah, yeah. It's too much for the kids to take on board. And they're just not prepared for what's happening over there. We need to get back to the technical side of it. Yeah. And we have a better chance of survival then, you know? Right, right, right. Okay, so after three or four trials, I mean, it must yeah. be exciting and stomach-churning and this opportunity is, is sort of within, within reach. Absolutely. And you're... Yeah, I mean, how did that affect you generally day to day? I mean, w when you were playing back here, did it improve you as a player yeah. going over and back when you were coming back here? Absolutely. I mean, to, 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 uh, there was one issue I remember very, very clearly, 1971 FA Cup final. Yeah. And it was incredible. I just happened to be in the house. We, we have a big group in that family. There was 12 always in the house at any given time. Yeah. And for some strange reason, I found myself on my own watching the 1971 Cup final. And uh, Charlie George, when he scored that goal, I said, you know, as a dream, as yeah, a dream, yeah, yeah. you say, I want to play there. Every kid does. Yeah, Every sure. kid wants to. But I got that dream two years later. And it was something I always wanted to do. So you can imagine how disappointing it must be for the majority. Yeah. So I was one of the fortunate ones that on that day I get called in. Yeah. And for that six months before my, my junior cert, my school was affected. I, there's no doubt about it. I was wondering, am I going to sign? Am I not going to sign? And then when you hear that news, it's just like... It's the best feeling in the world. It's yeah. incredible. So what happened? Was it a phone call or someone came to the house? No, I was in the house. I come in and my parents, my father, Papa Nile, and my parents uh, called me, sat me down and said, listen, we've got good news for you. Arsenal have been on, Bill Darby's been down to the house and they want you to sign a contract as an apprentice. And the school bag definitely went in. Yeah. <laughs> and stayed there. <laughs> Yeah, so it was fantastic. It was brilliant. Yeah. Fantastic. A dream come true. There you are. And if you think about it, years later, 
I'm there at, you know, 12 years of age, you know, watching the 71 FA Cup final and seven or eight years later you're playing in it. It's just phenomenal. Yeah. It's just hard beyond, to get your head around. Yeah. It's hard to get your head around it. But yeah. again, one of the lucky ones. Yeah. So what, you were 15 and a half? When you I was 15? 15 and a half. I went over 15 then and yeah. signed the con- I signed the contract here at home in the house and, and then again you sign another piece of paper over there mm-hmm. and then you get ready for the move across they set you in digs and that's the first step on the run and then the homesickness can kick in so now the real work starts yeah all the furor of saying you're going to sign you're going to play you think you're going to make it and you see people pushed by the wayside day in and day out so you go to the digs and then it's a key uh, element the first three or four weeks like a honeymoon period everything yeah. is great you're training you're used to you're not used to training every day which is a big that's a big sudden change and a big impact on young players. It can break mm. a lot of people because you're actually training every day yeah. and sometimes twice a day and then you're doing lots of chores. In those days, the apprentices had to work, clean, clean the, the showers, clean the, the toilets, yeah. clean the boots, we'd get the kit ready for the first team in the reserve. So it was a tough business. Mm. You had to get up early in the morning and get your work done, then train, and then get the work done again for the mm. kit. But it was a discipline, I think, came from the top with Bertie Mee. So Bertie Mee, he was a ex-RAF, as you know physiotherapist and most of the staff were Fred Street the physio he was a RAF guy as well so they were very disciplined army people and if you couldn't cut it you were gone yeah you know so did that help in a way because you knew exactly what was expected because you know if there's discipline if there's rules and regulations you have to follow then you know if you if you follow if you fall inside that then it It makes suited my mentality I was very lucky because as I said when when you grow up in a house my mother and father with 12 people uh, there's a discipline and there's a set pattern of everything, how things are done. Yeah. And that stood to me when I went over. And it suited me down to the ground. Yeah. Any, any homesickness at all? Was it difficult to transition from Dublin to London? Whereabouts were the digs? The digs were in Southgate, North right. London, yeah. And the majority of the digs, the lads would have all been within a two-mile radius so they could meet or go around and yeah. talk to each other. But there, obviously everybody, I think, suffered from that initially because if you remember back then, you probably only had two stations on the television. Yeah. It wasn't like digitalized. Yeah. We barely flew. People had never flown before. And it was expensive back it then was expensive. to fly. Yeah. It was over 120 pounds back then to fly across to London in those days in the 70s. So it was just a case of you were in the digs, you trained, you got home at 6 o'clock, had your dinner, and by 10 o'clock you were in bed. Yeah. So it was really, you felt lonely at nights a lot of the time, mm. but it's what you wanted to do. So I think everybody suffered, but they were very good again. Arsenal, fantastic. Every six weeks for the first six months, you know, they'd send you home. And if you really needed a thing, if you're really under pressure, they'd get you a flight home. They were fantastic. Wow. Absolutely fantastic. And again, that would not have happened anywhere else, really. That's, that's kind of behind-the-scenes stuff as well, isn't absolutely, it, that absolutely. people don't necessarily think about, you know? No, they don't. They don't uh, imagine a child playing on the street at 12 and 13 and two years later being living in London. Yeah. It's a huge transition, especially yeah. catching your first flight, you know, going to meet new people, mm. living with a new family where you're used to having lots of family, brothers and sisters around. So it's a big transition, and some can handle it and some can't. So luckily for me, I had a couple of periods in the first six, eight months, and then the coaches made it very clear, listen, you're here to play football now, you've got to make sure. So they give you that first year, and then it becomes a bit more. Yeah, you've got to toughen up a bit. But Arsenal were superb in that that category. And what was the the, the footballing education like? Because um, I, I don't know if the coaching that you would have got here compared in any way to to what happened at Arsenal. No, with the greatest respect to Joe Lawler and all the coaches in Ireland, they would have only been filtering down bits of information that they got from England anyway, yeah. in a lesser scale. So for me to train every day was a dream. 
I was doing that on the streets every day anyway here, but to have it structured and to be getting the proper information from top, top coaches that knew the game inside the ex-players and giving you tips, it was just a dream for me. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So the coaching was excellent. Yeah. Uh, and obviously in the 1970s, there was a, a very strong Irish connection at Arsenal. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, because I, I, I grew up in England in the 70s. And my yeah. folks were both Irish, and uh, I'm pretty sure that's what made me an Arsenal fan, that and Liam Brady. But the fact that there were Irish players, O'Leary, Stapleton, Brady, yourself, yeah. and all the Northern Irish guys as well at that point, I mean, there was no distinction in my mind uh, between between the two. So you had Sammy Nelson, Pat Rice, Pat Jennings. Yeah. Was that a big help? Absolutely. That was the deciding factor for me signing for Arsenal because right. I'd been offered to go to Man United. And the way it worked was they try and get you on trials in the summer period because you had six or eight weeks off. So I had, I had been booked to go to Wolves, who were a premier team at the time, and uh, Everton, yeah. top team with Alan Ball, Howard Kendall, all these guys, top players, Arsenal, and then Man United. But when I, went, when I walked through the doors of Arsenal and I heard Liam and Frank and Dave, I heard the voices, and Tony Donnelly was the kit man yeah. and uh, his wife, that was it. I just felt at home. I felt, but when I walking through the marble halls, anyway, has an yeah, effect yeah, yeah, on any yeah. child. I mean, I was fourteen years of age, and you walk through this fantastic place, and you're made feel welcome, and everything about the training pitches, the facilities, compared to anywhere else. Mm. So I literally come back home off the plane and said, "Dad, I'm signing for Arsenal." Yeah, if that was the choice, and that was it, and it did have an influence. Yeah. Do you remember your debut? For Arsenal, yeah, I do indeed. Leeds United, twenty second of May, nineteen seventy nine. Right, three one, we won. <laughs> Great game. I mean, you, you don't forget those things. It was fantastic, and uh, the lads were brilliant to me again. The older guys, when you get into the team, yeah. I'd had a bad injury a year earlier. I had a crucial ligament and in the reserves at Southampton, and that was a career-threatening injury. That's in right. Those yeah, days. back then that could have been and really again, bad. Couldn't I can only give credit to Fred Street. What a fantastic man he was. The mm. minute I got back off the train from Southampton, he had me going down to these doctors, had me on x-rays immediately and got me operated on within four days. Right. So, again, he told me that your career was finished. So, to be back a year or 14 months later... You were told that, were you? Or? Well, yeah. It was, in, fact, in fact, the two people that we went together in a car was Malcolm McDonald, who yeah. was having a problem with his knee at the time, yeah. and myself. And when we came out of the surgery, Malcolm immediately said, how did it go, kid? I said, it doesn't look good. He said, but he has this new carbon fibre stuff that they're trying to work with, so they're mm -hmm. experimenting with, so they're going to try a few different things for me to see if it works. And touch wood, a year and a half later, I was playing the FA Cup final. Wow. So it was a fantastic recovery. And Fred said, you were very strong and fit at the time. It was in an area that we could have helped you with it. So it just happened to work out because of the treatment and because I was at Arsenal. Had I been anywhere else, I don't believe I would have played. Wow. It was because of Fred Street and the staff at Arsenal and how they treated me at the time. They got me instant attention. They got me straight away down to the top people and I was operated on immediately and the recovery process took place and I, I put that all down to Fred Street. So I, I have a lot to thank him for in my career. Yeah, right place, right time, kind of, if you're going to have that kind of an injury because I remember even when, was it before the 1990 World Cup, Niall yeah. Quinn had that injury and people were, this could yeah. be a career ender, yeah. you know, and that's, yeah. that's 1990. Well, even, even these days now, I know they can the fantastic surgery, but when, you know, people break their legs, which I've broken my leg a couple of times as well. I was unfortunate like that. But the crucial ligament was one that it was thought that was it. Mm. You were finished. So, so again, as I say, I was blessed. I came back and uh, 
and, and, and mm. got through it and that was probably the lowest point in my career right uh, and then getting back to the highest point was 14 months later through hard work and t- dedication with great people I walked out at Ellen Road in front of Leeds and I never forget Arthur Graham was with the winger yeah. and he went off at half time to Norsey's Bruises and, <laughs> Alan, and I said the worst thing I ever did in my life was doing that because Alan Clark came on <laughs> in the second half and we all know what he was like yeah. but they were sort of coming to the end of their careers at yeah. that stage the last of the Revy era but for me again think about it you're 14 years of age you're watching these guys on television Johnny Giles Bobby Char or uh, Jack Charlton, yeah. all these top top players, Norman Hunter, bite your legs, Alan yeah. Clark, all these guys, and now you're playing against them. It's just uh, it's so. Just so what what was your approach then? You know, as a young guy going into the Arsenal first team, going up against Leeds, who still had that kind of prestige because of what, what they've been doing in the 1970s. I mean, were you a, a, a physical player? Did you like the physical side of the game? Or I, I think I was more of a ball player. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I wasn't a toughie like making tackles to beat the band. As far as I could tell, I was very fortunate from my father, Pop again, rest his soul. He told me practice with both feet. Yeah. When you go to England, they'll all be able to do this. And it stood to me that I've got seven or eight caps playing left back for Ireland as well yeah. as right back. So growing up then into the youth team and the reserves, you very quickly realise you're here for purpose. You see people getting pushed out the door mm. at every club. So you become hardened and you either want to make it or you don't. So yeah. that, that respect is there, but not enough to... to alter yeah. your, your, you know, your winning mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you showed me some team sheets before we started talking from the reserves, and you're playing yeah. centre-half alongside yeah. David O'Leary, but yeah. you played most of your stuff at, at full-back. When did that transition occur, or was that a choice? I mean, when you were a young player, were you playing centre-half? Centre-back all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was only when I went there after about... You asked me when. It was about six months into the Arsenal situation, mm. and I was playing alongside Dave O'Leary, and uh, again you can be fortunate that there can be a glut of players in your position and there can be some weaknesses in other positions in the youth teams and the reserves so there happened yeah. to be a few slots in the in the uh, in the youth team mm. at right back and the coaches tried me there and I loved it I was able to go forward a little bit more with more freedom to express instead of defending all the time it's harder work though Harry, I played, I played you know, centre half all my life and I like the fact that you don't have to get up and down the Absolutely. wing yeah, it's, it's hard work carrying Dave O'Leary as well you know? oh well yeah it's a tough job for anyone isn't it <laughs> no so it was great I mean I got on great with Dave and we were in digs together 48 round hill drive Mrs Lewis never forget it uh, Southgate and- hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And uh, we lived there for a couple of years together. 
Dave would be uh, pruning his nails and getting ready for the glory, and I'd be listening to the carpenters on the radio. You know, I love my music. <laughs> Dave was ready made to be captain of Arsenal. Let me believe you. Yeah, yeah. He was brilliant from the start. He just had that presence about him. He had that thing about Dave when he walked in the room. Boom. You had that. You knew he was going to be a top player. Sort of like a quiet leadership, because you get some guys who are obviously very vocal and, and, and that kind of a leader. Yeah. But Dave led by example. I mean, yeah. there was very few people beat Dave in any game. He was so quick and he read the game well and he was brave. He just had that quiet, you know, yeah. distinction about it. He lasted himself. a long time as he well, did. didn't he? He was you fantastic. Know? It's yeah. not, not easy to keep up that that level over 700 nearly 800 yeah. games for Arsenal it's phenomenal fantastic yeah. you know fantastic yeah. career so can you remember the first time you played at Highbury and what, what's you know I, I can remember the first time I ever walked into Highbury and saw the pitch and the green and you know well most of it was green but you know yeah. Yeah. and it's amazing but what, what's it like to run out there as, as a player well I have to mention one person Fred the, the groundsman at the time used to smoke a pipe and if he seen anybody walking on the pitch, he had a shotgun, he'd, he'd do you. <laughs> so nobody was allowed on the pitch for two reasons. You had to be good enough, or Fred was out in the lurches watching out for you. But uh, I remember it was, a, it was an FA Youth Cup game, right. and it was phenomenal. And again, the, the fans would be there, there'd be a couple of thousand people watching the games because they wanted to see what was coming through. The young lads and mm. great support. And just walking down that tunnel is just magical, and it was an incredible feeling, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. It's yeah. a brilliant stadium, isn't Absolutely. it? Or it was a brilliant... Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Thanks. So, the FA Cup final that you've spoken about, the 1980 yeah. FA Cup final, surely very mixed feelings about it because of the occasion, obviously, to be to be going out there mm. uh, and against a team at the time, West Ham, um, who were in the second division. And I can remember it mm. um, very well mm. because 79 was the first time I remember football and watching Arsenal and being... Mm. Uh, very obviously uh, overjoyed by the fact that we'd won the cup despite how frightening it was towards the end of that game you know we're two nil up you're I'm thinking this is brilliant this Absolutely. is what it's like yeah. all the time yeah. and then they come back and you're like oh shit and then we score and it's, yeah. it's brilliant and then the following season there was obviously the, the Cup Winners Cup final and the, the 1980 FA Cup final so mm. to, to, to play that game at Wembley and to be walking yeah. out uh, you know in an Arsenal shirt and then for the game to go the way that it did yeah I still don't like Trevor Brooking, you know. Well, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's probably the only header he's ever scored in his life. Yeah. You know, because, but I, leading up to that game, if you talk about the Man United game very briefly, if you look at the end of the film of that game, that was the year before I'd done my cruise ship. But you're on the bench, isn't that's there? A picture right. of you in, yeah, the, in the suit wearing That's right, in yeah. the suit. And uh, that was me. That was the, the, you asked me about the highlights and lowlights of my career. That would have been the lowest point because... I'd been injured for six, seven months with my knee yeah. and I've missed out on that opportunity to be mm. involved in that. And I was sitting directly behind Terry Neal and when we scored the winner, Alan Sunderland, all the footages of Terry turns to me and the two of us were so ecstatic we threw our arms around each yeah, other yeah, yeah, yeah. and we just grabbed each other. We didn't know what to say. <laughs> it was just because, again, Don't think anybody did those three point. minutes yeah. uh, were just surreal. And it was for me, it was a, an unbelievable feeling of I could be playing, but it doesn't matter. We've won the cup. Yeah. And then again, to come back from that injury and a year later, just to be out there and, and thank God my father was at the game as well. I never forget it. After the song, I looked up and I said, this is amazing. And I got a wave. So that was a very, very special moment for me. Yeah. So the downside obviously then was, I think if you look at the, the league season we had, we played about 70 games. And there was only one substitute allowed in those days, number right, 12. Yeah. So we would have all played on average about 50 
games. Some mm. guys 56, 58, some 47. They, they, it wouldn't be heard of today. Yeah. And we played those four really Trojan games against Liverpool yeah, yeah, in the yeah, semi-finals. Yeah. And then we had Juventus in the semi-finals. So leading up to the FA Cup final, we were playing up until the week before in another semi-final. Yeah. So I'm not making excuses, but the lads were burnt. Right. We didn't perform on the day. We didn't play well. They weren't great. And it was a horrible goal. But so it was a really disappointing low point. And then to go away to Europe on the Wednesday then. Yeah. But I think I think it showed. I think fatigue showed yeah. on that day. We, we were looking around the dressing room afterwards. And we knew we had another cup final on the Wednesday. The lads had no legs because of all those games. Yeah. You know? And it came close as well against Valencia, oh, didn't it? You know, another sickener, yeah. It does, uh, yeah. I mean, as a young supporter, it kind of educates you to the to the highs and lows of the game very quickly, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, you go into these games expecting to win, certainly against West Ham, yeah. you don't, and then you know. Yeah. You, um, it was a mixed emotions, is exactly right. You know, you're saying I'm playing at Wembley, but we lost. I'm at Wembley, I didn't play, but we've won. So I've had great experiences of Wembley Stadium and playing for and Ireland against England there as well. So it's a fantastic stadium, like Highbury. It has that magic. And later on, when I had to finish playing my career at 26, yeah. the good, good part of that was that kept me sane was you've got an FA Cup final medal, you've got a European Cup Winners Cup final medal, you've played in the Community Shield. Yeah. And I went to Norwich afterwards and we won the Cup at Wembley. So I've great memories there. So yeah. I can only say it's been good. Good, yeah. most of the time. So how did it come to a, a, a close at Arsenal? So what, about 160-odd appearances? And Yeah, and the thing and was, I think what happened then, was, it? I think if you, when you realised that we'd been to four cup finals, the three FA Cup finals and the European Cup, and we mm. toured in the league, we had a great team. And we were just so close to Liverpool. But let me tell you, Liverpool in the 70s were playing European football at its highest level. Yeah, They had a team that were playing push and move, pass and move, way before anybody else. There was nobody going to touch them at that time. So we were unfortunate. We had a good team, but they had a better team at that time. Mm. And Arsenal probably realised they needed to change things. When you've had seven or eight Irishmen on a team for that long, and highly successful, they obviously got impressions upstairs that maybe it's time to maybe move a few on. And then the wages was coming into play as well, where other teams were on much bigger wages than Arsenal at the time. Yeah, And uh, we didn't give a damn. We were playing for the love of it. Play, I would have played for Arsenal for nothing at that time. And Liam Brady was the one who was being offered to go to Juventus. And yeah. I think that's where it really started all that. And it had nothing to, Liam, Liam Brady was devastated that he had to go to Juventus. He wanted to stay with Arsenal for his whole career. And it was probably the difference between 500 and 1,000 pounds would have been the difference. And I think most of the Arsenal players in that dressing room, when we had meetings about it, would have said, We'll stay on the same contracts for two years as long as he can stay, if he wants to stay. He was in tears nearly, and uh, he had to go. And I think that was the start of the end for the Arsenal Irish Brigade. Yeah, and, and obviously uh, it had a big impact on the team as well because of just massive, what a player he was. Massive player. He was huge, huge. I mean, people often ask me who was the best player you ever played with. Yeah. Liam Brady, without a doubt. I played with Alan Hudson, some fantastic players. Dave O'Leary. I can mention lots of players. Pat Jennings, the best goalkeeper in the world as far as I'm concerned. But Liam Brady, all I had to do, as I say to my friends, was chip the winger into the stand and give Liam the ball. Yeah. And just watch. <laughs> and all I did was just stand behind in amazement sometimes. Just go and support him. You'd never get it back because Liam would beat two or three. Yeah. Or defence-splitting pass. Liam Brady was probably the best player I've ever seen. And so he was fantastic. So when he left, not only did it affect me as a fullback, 
it affected other people in the team I'm sure and yeah. then Frank and then it started to drift and then that was that transition period which every club knows takes a couple of seasons yeah. and we're starting to break up the team get new blood in yeah. and then it was my turn to go along with a few others like Frank yeah. and, and lots of people left at that yeah, time and obviously the, the 80s weren't, weren't particularly good for Arsenal until George Graham took over and, and changed and things changed around. And, and it took that three yeah. or four or five years to yeah. do that. We knew that was coming as well. But uh, I don't care what people say, to leave a club like Arsenal is a huge dent. You know, yeah. from, from boyhood, from 13 years of age, from arriving there till that time I left, it was a dream. There was ups and downs, highs and lows. But it's a fantastic and it's only when you leave Arsenal you realise as well how great it is yeah. the staff the people there I mentioned a few outfields all the old guys Bert Owen all the staff in the background Tony Donnelly it was fantastic yeah. you know? and do you still have a connection with the club well I've met Liam on numerous occasions yeah. I think he comes over here now with the junior lads for the St Kevin's tournament and I meet up with him and we have a cup of tea there it's fantastic to get together with him I haven't been back and forward to the stadium much yeah. and uh but I do meet up with Liam on occasions. Frank, I wouldn't see her, Dave. Unfortunately, that's football. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. people go their own way in life and they move on. Yeah. And, you know, you bump into each other occasionally at functions and things. But in general, it'd be Liam I'd bump into, and it's great because, as I said, he was he was like an idol to me. Yeah, fantastic, brilliant to just play give, with. Just give him the ball and let him get on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your career finished at 26. Injury, yeah. I, I, unfortunately, I'd broken my leg when I was younger as well so I had a couple of bad injuries with that crucial ligament and then when I was at um, Stoke I went to Norwich straight after Arsenal for two seasons and had great time there my daughter was born there Natasha and we got to the cup final which has been commemorated 30 years in March right. so I'm going over there for that we've been invited over to get the team to get Mick Shannon Asa Harf all those boys <laughs> Steve Bruce uh, Dave Watson Chris Woods so there was, it was a good little team under Ken Brown and Mel Machen and we'll go back to that function and have a look at that so I played at Wembley we got the cup final again we won which was great to get the winner's medal and then I went to Stoke and after 15 games playing for Stoke and I was having a great time there as well Terry Conroy was the influence there to get me up there mm. my ex-assistant manager for Ireland asked me Alan Hudson was retiring and he asked me to go up and play a few games in midfield for Mick Mills and I got on great we, we flew up the table three or four signings and we done really well just gelled mm. and against Brighton away of that year after 15 games I had a compound fracture seven places the, the leg was gone and I knew the minute it happened it was over Never compact. That's compact. bone sticking bone out. That's ankle at a right angle to your so knee. What, you know? what a bad tackle, was it? Yeah, it was a bad tackle, and uh, no uh, hardship with the guy. You know, Eric Young. I haven't spoke to him since. That was the game in those days. Was tough. Yeah. and there was tackles allowed and that's where I think the modern game has changed but Eric you know good luck to him you know it's nothing to do with that that was the mm. way it was it was a tough tough business yeah. you or him and that was the way it was in, in those days and tackles split second stuff though wasn't it that's the it was over and done and then you realise then after a couple of operations the docs say you're not because of you you had the same knee injury yeah. and the same leg so unfortunately I had to finish but luckily with great memories yeah and did you always I mean uh, have an inclination to stay in the game because we're sitting here in this uh, this complex here in, in, in Dublin which is amazing yes um, and obviously you've coached and yeah. you're now involved in, in this kind of thing yeah. I mean did you go straight into that side of things or? no well, luckily with Don Howe Don Howe was a great coach Don Howe what a genius he was tactically yeah and he had a great influence on me because he taught me a lot about discipline. And he actually encouraged two or three lads, Steve Walford, Alan Sullivan, and I think myself, we went on the, uh, the coaching badges. Mm. And I was about 19 at the time. 
So I would have got my force badge, and it was Bobby Robson was the the main wow. person looking after things. Cool. So what a fantastic experience yeah, yeah. that was when you look back on it. So Don was very influential about how he read the game, his tactical awareness. So I got involved at my young age. So luckily, as I went along, I got more and more badges. I'm now a pro licensed coach, and I've been on UA for study groups and. For my sins, Alex Ferguson got me on board and asked me to be tech uh, academy director for Ireland for 10 years. So I got involved with that. I couldn't yeah. refuse that. It was no, no, no. to work with the best manager. And I have to say, the best manager I've ever ever known, to be honest. Incredible man. And I worked for Man United for 10 years, a pro license. And I'm currently on the FEI technical committee for the national development plan yeah. to develop the game for future generations. So I'm involved in player development. Yeah. And, and you, you spoke about how there's a need to be more technical because, you know, uh, I know it's not really comparable, but I can remember that when I was a, a young guy playing at a reasonably organized level, it was all about <coughs> physicality and how much you could run and how strong you were. And there wasn't yeah. a great deal of technical uh, coaching. Is that changing now in Ireland? Is that something that's going to... Well, I'm trying to change yeah. it. I'm doing the best I can to try and educate people and influence them because I've traveled extensively after I finished playing. I went to Norway. I went to India. I went to Africa. I studied all around Holland and Scandinavia. And it was my passion was mm. to the player development. What are, what are the best teams doing? I traveled extensively to Spain. And I came back and got involved. And as I said, I'm on the technical committee now. So hopefully they listen to some of the recommendations that I have. And I think it's for the future. Technically, if you, if, I'll give you one example. When I came back on a flight from Manchester after playing for Arsenal against Man United, the Liverpool lads were on the same flight because we were coming back to play for Ireland. Yeah. There was 11 players on that flight that started for Ireland the following Wednesday that played for Man United, Liverpool and Arsenal. Yeah. The whole team was made up of top now and we were first, second and third in the league. Liverpool were first, Man United were second, Arsenal were third. So the top team in the Premier of that time contained 11 players on that flight that played for their country. We haven't got one that are playing really in the top levels, yeah. coming through the systems anymore. So Martin O'Neill and Roy are talking about the fact that they've nothing coming through. Robbie Keane mentioned it again. It's because we're not developing players correctly. We're playing highly competitive games and we're putting the cart before the horse and we need to get back to the fundamentals of skills and you know, passing control and dribbling. It's interesting because I think Arsene Wenger talks about how the formative years of a, of a player's career are, are quite young, that they reach a point where it becomes not impossible but difficult to, to improve them technically um, in, terms of, in terms of their skills. So if we're still exporting young players to the UK and there's loads of them going over and maybe not going to the top clubs, is it these years that that you guys have got to concentrate on so that between the ages of 10 and 14, 15, when they go over, yeah. that that's when this kind of coaching has to make an impact that will then allow them to progress better at the clubs that they go to or maybe make the, uh, the leap to, to bigger clubs? Absolutely. Arsene Wenger has a great statement when he talks about building a player foundation. He said, if you build a house, you start with the foundations. Yeah. We've gone away from that in Ireland and we're starting on the roof because we want to be highly competitive. They haven't got the basics, technical skills and tactical astuteness and awareness that the continental players have. Mm. Subsequently, players are going in droves to England to lesser clubs, not at the higher levels which I mentioned, Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, and they're coming back equally as quickly 
because they're just not good enough. Yeah. We need to change that dramatically. And the time is, Trevor Brooking was commented recently on an, in an article. He said, I learned most of what I know about football from 7 to 10. So that tells you something of a player of his esteem. Yeah. Now, I'd agree with him. So I designed a 10-year training program, but the main fundamental part from 6 to 10 years of, ten years of age is the most important key point. Yeah. And again, I'm trying to influence the FEI and people to get on board because I know what I'm talking about. I've travelled extensively. I've been with the best. We need to get back to those kids and teach them, and then they can go to yeah. the higher clubs, I do believe. And Great it, it, talent in Ireland, by the way. Can I, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, sure. We have fantastic players in Ireland, raw materials. But we're not teaching them the right way. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's. Uh, I remember at 10, 11 years of age playing 11-a-side football on full-size pitches. It's not really the way to do it, is it? No. Well, again, the, the programme I designed is all about two... As I mentioned when I first started this interview, 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, on the street. Yeah. Until your mates came around and played. So you had lots of contact with the ball. We know we've talked about things of 10,000 hours of contact with the ball to be a, an elite player. Mm. That's not happening anymore. Kids don't practice on the street. They're on computers all the time. So I designed these games specifically to make sure the smaller areas with more touches of the ball, more contact with the ball. And that's what I'm trying to influence, non-competitive football in this country, so that we give them a chance that when they go away, they'll have had those contact hours with the ball. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and that's it. And, then, and I know it works. And I've seen Anthony Stokes. When I ran the United Academy, you had Anthony Stokes, who came through the Arsenal system. Yeah. He would have played 3v3 and 4v4 me at 10 years of age. And I know it works. Yeah. So hopefully hopefully we can take that. The fundamentals need to be addressed really quickly. Yeah. And hopefully then Ireland will benefit because down the line then we can start looking at our 17s and 21s qualifying for things like they did before. Yeah. And, the, and the first team especially then playing a different brand of football in the future is it more difficult for young Irish kids going over to the UK now because it's it's more open obviously when you went over there weren't the amount of players coming from continental Europe for example it's, it's a great it's a great question and it's a great debate but I'll give you some quick examples yeah. I would not say it's more you know difficult uh, it was, it's, it's highly difficult at the standard is incredible anyway but if you look at Wales Wales have 3 million they have 11 or 12 players I could name now that play in the Welsh team that are all currently playing Premier football mm. from the ages of 18 to 24. You can name a whole thing. And that they have rugby league and they've got rugby union. So we people sometimes argue, debate, it's Gaelic and, rug, Gaelic and rugby here in Horley. Yeah, you yeah. Know, that's the, the example I give. It's four and a half million in Ireland, three million in Wales. They can still produce a, a Welsh international team and a youth team and that because that, that, they've got a basic training programme for 10 years yeah. that they're adhering to and they're going to be way ahead of us unless we play catch-up. So I don't agree with this argument because this continental place. Of course it's going to influence to some degree but it doesn't stop us doing the right thing. I still believe that we have the quality here to be equally as good as them if we're coached the right way. Right. It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge but it can be done yeah. and I no doubts I could do it. Right. I've no doubts we can do it. I've no doubts in another few years we could get a 15s and a 17s team back on track with the, the likes of the Continentals. No problem. All right. uh, just finally, before we wrap it up, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, yeah, no. well, what do you make of um, Arsenal this season? Uh, they seem to have found a little bit of form recently, but the early part of the season wasn't, wasn't quite as good as it should have been based on what happened last season having won the cup again after so long without a trophy I mean how how, how much do you keep up with what's going oh, on listen, from the day I finished playing for Arsenal I've looked every Saturday at the results straight away 
Arsenal becomes a part of your blood. When you leave home and leave your family to go to a club like Arsenal with such prestige and, and history, you know, it doesn't leave you. Yeah. So as soon as the, the game, half-time or the end, how did they get on? The teams you played for, especially Norwich and Stoke, I still keep an eye out for them. But Arsenal has a special heart, place in my heart. I think the Manchester City game, was the catalyst for Arsenal to become winners again. I know Arsene Wenger is fantastic. They've been playing this fantastic football over the years. I've kept in touch with it. But a lot of it was a little tip-tapping around the box. There's no end product. Mm. But more importantly, the defensive side of thing was gone. For me, they grew up tactically. And if you want to win things, that's the way you go about it. Yeah. If they can build on that, which they've done in the last three or four games, they've been fantastic and solid defensively now Steve Bold is there who I played with at Stoke oh wow that's yeah cool. absolutely Steve was playing centre back at Stoke and then he went right back and then he went centre back again and I actually mentioned it to Arsenal about Steve and Lee Dixon at the time when they were playing to David Miles uh, because I thought they had great oh, potential very interesting so there you go so there was a little bit of a connection and I do see Boldy quite a bit when I'm back in Stoke yeah. because we play together what's he like as a, as a character because when we yeah. see him uh, beside Arsene Wenger on the bench mm. he's normally pretty quiet and mm. he just sort of watches but I, I'm guessing obviously as a coach and as, as somebody on the training ground he's got to be different than that oh well he, I mean he, he has a presence about him he's a winner that's fun. the one thing I noticed about Steve Bold when, we, when I played yeah. with him he, this, guy's, this guy can play at a higher level and that's why I recommended him and I'm sure many other people did as well I'm not saying I was responsible for him going to Arsenal but I did ring David Miles about him and Lee he has a quiet strength about him he knows the game he wants to win and he's a really intelligent character and I think he's a, a really good co- top coach for the future but yeah. I think having learned watched that game again Man City for me was the catalyst for Wenger and Bold and the players to realise we might need to do this we can't be playing this fantastic constructive attacking uh, you know uh, counter-attacking football all the time and leaving holes at the back yeah. they've closed that up if they can keep that going they're going to be tight contenders let me tell you now all right. Well, fingers crossed. I hope that's the case. Absolutely. I have no doubts. I think right. uh, they showed on that day that discipline is needed to, to win league. That's the blueprint. That's is the it? blueprint. Absolutely. It doesn't mean you're negative. It means, you know, you can that count. Look at Walcott's back now. They've got Ozil starting to show a bit yeah, more yeah. form. You know, the Sanchez, you've got so many quality. Oxley Chamberlain, look at him, that young kid. So many exciting players that can be there in t- two seconds, they're up the other end. But if you get the defensive side done, it mm. can be really exciting to watch for the future. And uh, I can't say enough about them if they can learn from that. Well, let's hope they do. Well, let's hope they do. And I'd just like to say one last thing again. Yeah. To, if, for anybody listening in from the Arsenal, I'd just like to thank them all. From the time I was 13 years of age, Fred Street, Al Fields, Bert Owen, all the Tony Donnelly, all those guys in behind the scenes, and all David Miles, Cam Fryer, all those people that were involved in the Dr. Sash, Dr. Crane. I, you know, I, I remember them all. Yeah. Fantastic people. They made my life an absolute joy for about nine years to be at Arsenal. To have a play for a club like that, with that history, is phenomenal. So thanks a lot. Well, they do say, isn't it, that, that there's something, just that little bit of class about the way Arsenal do things, and, and, well, here's proof positive. I'll finish on that word, class. Thanks a million. Thank you. My thanks indeed to John Devine for giving me so much of his time. And before we started the interview the other day, uh, he showed me some bits and pieces from his time at the club, some memorabilia that he had saved, and uh, one of those was his first contract on a huge wage. And you can see that it was signed by, by John, by John's father, and also by Ken Fryer who, as we know, is still there, Mr. F, 
doing his thing. There's also some uh, team pictures. There's a team sheet lineup from the FA Youth Cup, I think from 1974, 1975. Uh, and some of the names on there uh, you'll recognize very quickly indeed. So do check them out. I'm going to put them on the blog post today. So you'll find them uh, links to them uh, on the blog post. And uh, really interesting to see those bits and pieces. And um, after we'd finished the interview, uh, John gave me a ring just because he wanted to mention somebody specifically that he forgot to mention at the end there. And that was one of the youth coaches called Roger Thompson, who was not only a great coach and helped him enormously in his football, but also as a man who helped him as a young guy settle into life in London when he was feeling homesick. Uh, he was there to make things a bit better. And he said he was one of the main reasons why he stayed at Arsenal when things uh, got a bit tough. So there you go, Roger Thompson. If you're listening or if somebody knows uh, Roger Thompson, you could pass on the message that John thinks uh, extremely highly of him and uh, is very grateful for all the all the kindness that he showed him in his time at the club. So time to move on and we've got a North London derby coming up tomorrow. Early kickoff away from home. Hmm, this was last season's nightmare, wasn't it? But uh, the form we're in and the, the kind of football we're playing at the moment, it's hard not to be reasonably confident, even though, as the old cliche goes, form goes out the window in these games. And I don't think that's ever more true than when it comes to a North London derby. Form, quality of the teams, none of it really matters because on the day it's just just down to whichever team is going to put in the biggest shift, I think. Um the team news, such as it is, is that Alexis is not going to be fit, which is a bit of a shame. That's a blow because, uh, obviously, on Monday's Arscast, we were talking about who would come out of the team to bring Alexis back in. Uh, the consensus, well, myself and James had decided that uh, Theo Walcott would probably be the one to make way, but with Alexis out now, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's going to be any changes to the team at all. Uh, the team that played so well against Aston Villa and won 5-0. So it's another chance for Ozil, another chance for Theo Walcott. Olivier Giroud will probably continue up front. However, uh, Danny Welbeck is back, so maybe, maybe you could see the manager use him. Not sure. I think he'll probably be on the bench. But the rest of it, you wouldn't change much of it, would you, at all, after how well we played against Aston Villa. Um, it's very difficult to know what to say about this game and what to say about a North London derby in particular, other than you just want Arsenal to go out and do their best and smash them around the park and score lots of goals. But it's rare that that happens, uh, particularly at their place. Obviously, they're in reasonable form. I think there's only what, two points between us in the table. I can't, uh, I can't really remember, but it's, it's not much. I know that we moved above them. I'm going to go have a look now. I know we moved above them uh, when we won at the weekend. The Premier League table, as it stands, we're in fifth on 42. They're in sixth on 40. So a draw would keep us ahead of them. A win would put a little bit of distance between us and them, and that would be that would be very nice indeed. Um, I don't know what else to say about it other than I hope the absence of Alexis is about as relevant as it was against Aston Villa. But then, of course, we have midweek action in the Premier League against Leicester City at home. The Leicester game away, one of those we probably should have won but dropped silly points in. Um, you'd be looking for all three, obviously, given the, the state that they're in, the way that they're playing, they're bottom of the table. They may not be bottom by the time we play them, but who knows? Uh, it's still a game that you would expect us to win. So if all things go well, 
between now and Tuesday or Wednesday, we could have added six points to our total, which would be very nice indeed going into whatever fixture we have next weekend, which I'm not going to look forward to at this point. So we'll look back on the North London Derby on Monday. Myself and James will be here for an Arscast Extra, hopefully at the correct time. Um, I think he's back from all his um, world travelling and all that. So uh, we should be back to normal time before lunch on Monday. We'll have the Arscast Extra. So until then, let's keep everything crossed for tomorrow, and uh, we'll chat to you on next week's Arscast. So until then, cheers, bye-bye. sitting staring out the window admiring the legs of the girl across the road. They were like a giraffe's, long and slender and with weird clumping hooves at the bottom. The guy walked in. What do you want, mister? I said, I'm busy. I got a problem, he said. Oh yeah, I said, what's that? One of my guys, I think he's gone off the rails, he said. How do you mean, I said. You know, he said, he likes to get baked. What's the problem with that, I said. Who doesn't like delicious snacks straight from the oven? No, he said, he goes out every day at 4.20. So he's punctual and reliable, I said. What's the problem? Oh, my God, he said, he likes to get high. Ah, you should have said that in the first place. So I follow the kid. The next week, I report it back to the man. Your guy doesn't have a problem with that. Don't worry. Oh, he said, that's such a relief. Sure, I said. But he just sold his car for opium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.